Good morning. My name is Jim. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Journey Church, and we're going to dive into part two of our series. Before we do, I just want to reference something we put online this week. There's a special announcement coming, and we're going to get to that at the end. Um, but we're kind of, <clears throat> kind of fast-tracking this morning because I've got a lot to say, and as you know, sometimes I, I can't abbreviate what I'm about to say. So we're going to jump right into this series. Uh, we're in part two of this. We're calling it David uh, primarily because I couldn't think of a better title. Um, but we're studying the life of David, who would eventually become the king of, of, uh, of Israel, <clears throat> perhaps Israel's greatest king. Um, and as we look in this life, we're going to be reminded of something that's relevant for all of us. Um, depending on where you are in your life, you could be going through it right now. It could be the season that you just left, or maybe it's the season that's coming up in your future. But here's what we're going to discover as we dive into this story today. That the ways of God are most unappealing and seemingly irrelevant when we are angry, isolated, or afraid. That the ways of God are the most unappealing and seemingly irrelevant when we are angry, isolated, and afraid. If you're a Christian, we believe that this is the God of the New Testament. If, if you're not a Christian, uh, maybe you're a theist and you have this idea of God, or maybe you're really not sure what you kind of believe. We, we believe that there are, there's a God who kind of ordered ways, who knows what's going on. But regardless of kind of where you fall on that spectrum, as we read through this life of David, we're going to see something that's very similar in all of us. And that's that when things aren't going the way we think they should be going, God's ways seem very unappealing and very, very irrelevant. Sometimes we ask ourselves this kind of question. We're in these environments. Why would, why would anybody even do this? Why, we kind of look out. Why would anybody do this? Why would anybody ever think that? Why would you make that choice? Why would you spend money that way? Why would you go and do this kind of thing? And these are three conditions that we've all kind of discovered, three conditions that really have the potential to undermine our, the resolve of the most dedicated, the most de devout, and most disciplined person there is. These three, these three kind of emotions are really like three giants that tend to slay the most devout Christian, the most devout person. And if we're not careful, it'll cause us to go off the track, to go off the rails, so to speak, relationally, physically, financially, or even professionally. One of these three, or maybe even a, com a, a combination of these three, tend to be your greatest regret in life. And the reason for this is when we're part of these conditions, when we're kind of overwhelmed with these emotions that are associated with this condition, we're compelled to do something, right? There's kind of this anxiety, there's this feeling going on, and we're not really, we're not sure what to do, but we, I just got to do something. I'm, I just, I've got to do something. And we kind of scramble because of that anxiety. As a matter of fact, we even do this. We find ourselves willing to do just about anything. I'll do anything to relieve this pressure. I'll do anything to get rid of this anxiety. I'll do anything to not fear the way that I've been fearing. And what ends up happening is the things that we use to try and get away out and trying to alleviate pressure create more pressure. The things that we use to try to avoid a regret <clears throat> really create a great regret. There's no loss of regret. There's more regret. Things aren't less complicated. They're more complicated. And we end up angrier and we end up lonelier. Now, as we dive into the story of David... David, even being Israel's greatest king, he had two huge colossal failures in his life. Two of them that are very huge. One of them that he's kind of more famous for happened in his 50s when he was actually the king of Israel. He was King David, the king that we're all familiar with. The one we're going to look at today, it happened in his 20s. And not many people know this story. He's really not famous for this. But I think it's one of the most interesting, one of the most dramatic stories in, in the Old Testament. As we begin to look into this life of David and how this, this young man, if you weren't with us last week, this is the young man that slayed the giant Goliath, right? A nine-foot, nine-inch tall, like, beast of a man. This little 15-year-old boy walks out with a sling and a rock and slays a giant and then destroys this, this whole opposing Philistine army, this enemy. 
<clears throat> this young man makes a colossal mistake that will kind of mark the rest of his life. <clears throat> it's something that will carry with him. It's something that changes him forever. And it's something that, that I believe, as we kind of look at it and compare it to our lives, that we all have the potential of making a mistake of that caliber when we begin to feel like David felt. As I said, a little background, if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to, get on, to go online and watch our message last week as we kind of walked through the events that lead up to this. This is a young boy, David. He's a shepherd boy, and he goes to visit his brothers who are in this Israelite army, and he sees this, this beast of a man, uh, Goliath, threatening the Israelite army, defying God, and David walks out this, to this valley where Goliath is. There's the Philistine army on one side and the Israelite army on the, uh, the other, and he confronts Goliath and slays this giant, and immediately he becomes the most famous man of all, in all of Israel. They're writing songs about him. He's a legend. It's, it's just, it's King David. And he, this, this young man who, has, who had nothing, just a shepherd boy, he ends up becoming the most influential, kind of powerful person there is. And King Saul, king who's the Saul at the time, he's the first king of Israel. He's like a, a little bit of, of a neurotic king. He's nervous. He's anxious. He kind of sees what's going on with David, and, and he gets panicked. And he thinks, I've got to control this young man. I, I've, got to, I've got to bring him into my family so I can control him because he's getting too powerful. He's getting too influential. So Saul decides to try to marry David off to his daughter. And David, this young kind of humble man, he, he, I mean, his response is just golden. He says, but I, I'm not worthy to marry your daughter. I'm not from a famous family. I'm not from a rich family. I'm not worthy to be the king's son-in-law. And he declines the offer. And that just, like, that just boosts him to all kinds of fame even more. Because now everyone in Israel is thinking, what a humble man to turn away. Like, who would turn that away? Only David would turn that away. And David becomes even more powerful and more influential. Well, the story goes on. As the years continue to grow, David actually does fall in love with one of Saul's daughters named Michael. And he actually marries Michael and becomes part of Saul's family. And then he becomes best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. And now Saul's on the back thinking, maybe this wasn't a good idea to get David in this family because not only is he influential in my kingdom and with his army and the generals, now he's influential with my family. So Saul does like you know, what, what most neurotic people do. He panics and makes an even worse decision, and he tries to get David secretly arrested. Well, his son Jonathan finds out about it and warns David, and his daughter finds out about him and warns David. And David kind of avoids this, erection, this, this uh, like, uh, arrest, this whole idea of trying to, to capture David. He avoids the whole thing, and now Saul's ticked off at his family. So Saul, like, in, in his desperation, thinks, I've got to take matters into my own hand. I've got to deal with David. And he sets out a plot to try to kill David. But he doesn't want to do it himself because he's a little bit of a coward. So he sends David out to like the front of the battles and on these impossible missions to kill the Philistines. And what does David do? He's successful and comes back alive every time. So that as this drama kind of plays out, you can see Saul is just like totally ticked off. He can't kill this guy. He can't get rid of this guy. And David, in, in every effort Paul, Saul makes to destroy him, David comes back looking even better, looking like the king, looking like the authority, looking like he has all the influence and all the power. And it all culminates to one night at dinner. Now, in this culture, it's very like eating dinner is like the most important meal of the day. And if you're ever invited to eat dinner with a king, it's an incredible honor. Well, David is now, you know, Saul's son-in-law, and for the years he's been meeting with, with Saul, having dinner with him, but there, as things got more and more turbulent, he began to, to stop attending dinner more and more. One night at dinner, Saul gets frustrated, and he's, you know, has a plot to hurt David, and David's not there, so in his anger, he looks out at his son Jonathan, and he says, where's David? And Jonathan, you know, tried to cover him for his best friend, comes up with an excuse, well, Dad, I, th I think he's out, you know, maybe he's, he's doing that, or he, he's, he's over there with those guys, yeah, he, he's, he's doing something. And Saul says something to, to Jonathan that I, I think this is like the Bible's way of trying to tone it down, but 
But as you can see as we dive into this verse, it's pretty clear to me what Saul means. So this is Saul's response. His anger flares up at this dinner table against his son. This is what he says. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. I mean, I don't need to paint a clearer picture than that for you, do I? He calls his own son, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. And I'm kind of wondering, like, I really hope that perverse and rebellious woman isn't sitting out at the table, because how awkward would that be? But he makes this declaration against his son. Like, you can just tell this man is, he's a little crazy, right? He's a little neurotic. He's anxious. He's worried. He's fearful. And he starts to, to make these horrible accusations against his son. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse? So Saul's like, I, you know, I'm tired of this. Everyone's siding against me. Everyone's falling in love with David, my son, my daughter, the kingdom. Why is everyone turning against me and, and like falling in love with this son of Jesse? To your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you. Again, going back to, to, to Jonathan's mom. Clearly there were some marriage issues there. The story goes on. As long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, and here's where Saul kind of gets to the real issue of what he's feeling, neither you nor your kingdom. So Saul's the first king of Israel, and he's thinking his son Jonathan will be the next king of Israel. They'll have this legacy. They'll be like these great rulers over Israel. And he looks at his son, and he says, neither you, as long as you continue to side with your best friend instead of me, neither you nor your kingdom will ever get established. Our family history will die with me. We'll never make the mark we thought we'd make. This won't be a dynasty or a legacy. It's going to fade away. Your kingdom will never be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. What does Jonathan do? Jonathan, being David's best friend, he runs and he finds David. And he says, you got to get out of here. Run. Run for the hills. Go anywhere. My dad's trying to kill you. Like, David, this little, this little like, tug of war between you and my dad, it's not going well. It like, escalated really quick, and now he wants to kill you. You've got to run. So David, 22 years old. This is just seven years after he kills this giant Goliath. This 22-year-old boy, he, he decides to run. Like, what does he do? He runs, but but understand David's position. He doesn't deserve any of this. He killed a giant. He sacrificed, he like put his life on the line for the kingdom of Israel. He put his life on the line for the king because the king wouldn't fight the giant. And then countless times, he led Saul's armies. He was Saul's bodyguard. Saul sent him on impossible missions, and he came back alive time and time again. Why does he deserve something like this? David runs. But my guess is, David's feeling what a lot of us would be feeling in that situation, right? He's abandoned, he's angry, and he's afraid. He's feeling abandoned by his family, by the king, by his nation. He's angry because, after all, he doesn't deserve any of this. And now he's scared for his life because Saul's coming after him with an army to kill him. So he decides to take matters into his own own hands. He lost sight of something that's really, it's hard for us to imagine because we kind of see this from like the 30,000 foot view, this whole story, right? We see David, we see him killed Goliath. We know that at some point he's going to be king. David doesn't see that. And in the midst of his circumstances, what happens? He gets lost in his circumstance. He gets overwhelmed and he decides to take matters into his own hands. And we kind of look at this and think, David, why would you panic? You're God's chosen. You're going to be king. I mean, we know the end of the story. You're going to be the greatest king in Israel. But David can't see it coming. It's amazing to me that there are kind of people like that in our own lives now that that, that are feeling maybe a little abandoned, maybe feeling a little angry because life isn't working out the way they thought. Maybe they're afraid because their circumstances have piled up and there's, there's this mounting debt or this relationship is about to fall apart or there's this turmoil between your kids and you just don't know how it's going to work out. 
And we kind of look out at these circumstances, and from the outside looking in, from that 30,000-foot view, we kind of think the same thing that we would think about David. Why are you doing that? Don't do that. It's going to be okay. Don't make that decision. Don't spend your money there. Don't say yes to that relationship. Like, don't do this kind of thing. But oftentimes, we feel a little like David did. And that's what I see happen time and time again with a lot of Christians. But our, our situation's a little different, isn't it? No one feels the way I feel. No one's gone through the, way, the things that I've gone through. And because we feel like our situation's a little different, we begin to compromise. We begin to make those bad decisions. We begin to take matters into our own hands. And what often comes of these situations is more regret and more pain and more loss. David ran. David went to a place called Nob, to Ahimelech the high priest. Now, I need to explain this for you a little bit. In the, the nation of Israel really didn't own the surrounding cities of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was kind of isolated. There really wasn't a capital city, but the land around it, <clears throat> they didn't own. So what they would do is they would take the Ark of the Covenant, the temple, this like really famous kind of religious centerpiece of their life and their religion and their culture, and they would move it from city to city. Whatever city was the most safe, they would move the, the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, <clears throat> and then all the high priests would follow. Well, they moved it to a place called Nob, and Ahimelech is the high priest. He's kind of ruling over. He, he's the person that everyone goes to to kind of say, hey, what is God looking for me? What, what, what's the answer to this problem? So Ahimelech, the high priest at the time, he sees David coming. <coughs> and the text tells us, Ahimelech trembled when he met David. And he asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? I mean, you can sense there's a little bit of hesitation in him, right? He's looking out. This doesn't make sense. You're like the king's favored. You're, you're, you're the king's son-in-law. You're, you're like <clears throat> the leader of the bodyguard. When you come, people hear you coming because you march with a thousand warriors. David, why are you here? You look a little disheveled. You look a little unclean. You look a little worried. What's going on? <clears throat> David answers Ahimelech. But David does the first, his, makes his first big mistake. Instead of being honest, David lies. We know David's against lying. I mean, that's like one of, one of the big thou shall nots, right? That's one of the big Ten Commandments. Thou shall not lie. What's the first thing David does? He lies to cover himself. And listen to this lie. And really, listen to how pathetic of a lie he comes up with. This is what his response is. <clears throat> the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know about the mission I'm sending you on. As for my men, I told them to meet me at a, a, a certain place. Like how lame of a lie. You couldn't even think of a good place that you said to send your men so you could meet them there. He's so panicked, he lies about why he's there, and he lies about having these men, and he sends them off, and you can almost kind of get the feeling as the story plays out, Ahimelech is seeing through this a little bit. Like he loves and he trusts David, but something isn't adding up. So David responds, or keeps going with his story to Ahimelech, now, now then, what do you have on hand? I'm kind of hungry. Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. <clears throat> now David's here, and he lies about why he's here, and then he lies about why he has no food, <clears throat> but Ahimelech responds to him and says, David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some of this consecrated bread. Now, they point out that it's consecrated bread, and, and here's why. Because in, in this culture, the priests would make bread to God on the Sabbath day. They would kind of put it out for God. And then after the Sabbath, they'd come back, and, and sure enough, God didn't eat any bread. The bread was there. So the priest would take it, and the priest would eat it, but it was now consecrated bread, which meant you had to be ceremonial, ceremonial that's a hard word to say, ceremonially clean to eat this bread. <clears throat> that was typically reserved for priests. Now, Ahimelech trusts David. He knows David loves God. He thinks David's clearly ceremonially clean. I'm going to stop saying that now. 
<clears throat> so he offers David some of this consecrated bread. This is all I have. So the priest gave him this consecrated bread. Now, David lies about why he's there. And then he lies about being hungry and the food and being worthy to eat the food. So clearly he isn't clean enough to eat this food that the priest is offering him. And he makes a decision coming up that, that is just going to like unfold horribly. It's a decision he will regret forever. But it, it's a decision that I think it, we're so capable of making. In his fear and his anxiety, David kind of looks up to this guy Ahimelech and he says, Hey, Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? Don't you have some kind of weapon? And now Ahimelech's really kind of nervous. It's like, okay, this is the king's son-in-law, the leader of the bodyguard. You look disheveled. You show up. You're hungry. And I don't really buy your excuse. You say your men are somewhere, but it didn't really sound right. And now this great warrior, he shows up without a weapon. Like, David, I, I'm really not sure. I'm not sure I know what's going on here. I don't know if I like where this is going. But Ahimelech responds. Or David says, rather, I, have, I haven't brought my sword with me or any other weapon because the king's mission was so urgent. I mean, he, it was so fast. I had to leave with nothing. No food, no men, no weapons. I, I just came here without anything at all. And the Himalek is going to offer David something that, that is going to be one of those reminders. It's like one of these moments in our lives where it's like, you should rethink this decision, right? I'm, like something just uncovers in a moment we're about to do something awful. And it's like, don't do this. Don't make this decision. David asks, and the priest replies to this, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. And David's immediately transported back in time to seven years ago, to the event that catapulted him into this stardom, into being this kind of spectacle of Israel, into that moment where he trusted God so much that he was willing to stare into the eyes of a giant with a sword and a spear and face him with a sling and a stone. That was his wake-up call. That was his moment to say, ah, I'm making a mistake. i got to fix this. But David misses it. He misses it as often many of us kind of miss it when we face our giants. And we have that moment, that kind of wake-up call. Don't do this. Don't make this decision. Don't go that way. Don't return that call. It's a wake-up call that David completely misses. And if you were here last week, you're kind of wondering the same thing I was wondering as you're reading through the story. What happened to the, to the young man who trusted God so much? He said, in you, O oh Lord, I put my trust. My hope is in you all the day long. What happened to that 15-year-old boy who trusted God so implicitly that he said, regardless of the giant I face, regardless of how this threat is coming at me, I will come at him. He may threaten me with a sword and a spear and a shield, but I will defeat him with a sling and a stone to show everyone else that they're the God of Israel is the real God whom he has defied. What happened to that young man? What happened to that boldness? What happened to that confidence? David, where are you? Where's the King David that we know and love? See, the answer is this. Fear, anger, and loneliness. The three giants. The three giants that David faced. The three giants that we often face. The three giants that really can capture our emotions so much so they cause us to do things we wouldn't normally do. They cause us to think things we wouldn't normally think. They cause us to act in ways that we wouldn't normally lack. As a matter of fact, from the outside looking in, we would say, don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. Don't make that mistake. But when it's us and it's our situation and we're facing fear and anger and loneliness, how quick are we to do the same thing? To make decisions we regret to act ways we shouldn't act, to do things we wouldn't ever normally do. God gave David a wake-up call. He gave him an opportunity. Don't do this. And David misses it. 
The priest replies to David, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed. You remember that day, David? You remember how awesome that day was when you became the David we know in the valley of Elah is here. And it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Now, the ephod is a garment the priest wore when they did their priestly duties. The priest says, if you want it, take it. There is no sword but that one here. So he brings out the sword to David. You can almost imagine this. All of the memories are coming back. This is the sword that after David hit him in the head with a stone, he picked up this giant sword. And you can imagine, it's like one of those big Braveheart swords to a little kid. He picks it up and he cuts off the head of a giant. And the reason Ahimelech has it is David, when he did it, he kind of took the sword back as a souvenir. Like, like who wouldn't? You just did the amazing. You did the impossible. But he takes the sword and he gives it to the priest, basically saying, I want everyone to know what I want you to know. I didn't kill the giant, but it was God through me who killed the giant. And this now is memorial to God, not to me. He hands this, this sword back to David and it goes into his hands. And all of these memories, all of these emotions, how David was feeling, it all rushes back. And David says, there is none like it. Give it to me. And he literally takes his future. He literally takes his destiny into his own hands. And he makes a decision that he will regret forever. Not just him, but Ahimelech and all of Ahimelech's family. You see, David had a flawed weapon. He had a flawed response. And as we're about to, to, to see, there was a disastrous outcome. And this is where our story begins to intersect with David. Right? This is where, where all of us, we kind of are right here. There we are right at that moment where that decision is placed before us to walk away and to trust in God or to take our future, to take our hopes, to take our dreams in our own hands, to take our fear and our worry into our own hands and make a decision that we would forever <coughs> regret. And as most of us do, just as David does, he makes a complicated situation more complicated. He makes a regretful situation even more regretful. And here's the reason why. Because he's convinced himself that his situation is different than everyone else's. Yeah, I know I trusted God to defeat that giant, but the king's after me. Yeah, I know I trusted God on all those impossible missions, but the king's after me. My situation's different. And David thought, I'm sure what all of us think when we're faced with these circumstances. If God were with me, I mean, really, if God were with me, this wouldn't be happening to me. <clears throat> and here's what I've learned. And it's something I've learned as being a Christian. It's something I've learned as being a Jesus follower. And it's something I've seen a lot as being a pastor. That it's really easy to trust God when we have nothing to trust him with and nothing to trust him for. Right? It's really easy to trust God when everything's going well. It's really easy to trust God when your finances are working out and your marriage is perfect and your kids are behaving and your job's going smooth. It's easy to trust God and to serve God when it's like, man, life just couldn't be any better. I mean, that's easy. It's really easy to serve God when you have nothing to trust him for and nothing to trust him with. But it is eternally more difficult to trust him when things that we value begin to slip away. So David takes Goliath's sword, and then just to show how kind of far David had gone, he runs with the sword, but where does he run? To the land of the Philistines. Like, clearly, this guy's losing it. He runs to the very enemy that he defeated, and, and he kind of pleads himself, right? He, he, goes, he goes past the land of the Philistines into Gath, where Goliath, the giant, was from, and he finds the king or the ruler of the Philistine army, and he says, hey, hey, I, I, I want to I join your army, and I want to go defeat the Israelites, defeat my, my own people. 
And they're thinking, dude, you're nuts. We know who you are. You're David. You're the guy who killed Goliath, our greatest warrior. I mean, you're carrying his sword. Surely you must, you're just, you're crazy. And then David in a panic, I mean, this is so interesting. This is all in the Bible. I'm not making this up. He begins to act crazy. He takes his nails and he starts scratching himself and scratching on wood and drooling all over himself. And the king literally says, I have enough jokers in my kingdom. I don't need you. Send him away. David runs off. They send him out of the kingdom and he runs and he finds a cave to hide in. When he's in the cave, it's finally like his senses start coming back. And he's like, all right, I've got to find out what's going on. So he goes back to his land and he finds another prophet. And he kind of throws himself at the prophet feet and says, I need to know what God wants for me. Because I don't know what to do, and I've made some mistakes. I've done some horrible things, and I just don't know what to do. What does God want from me? <clears throat> What's interesting is when he was with Ahimelech, just a few, few weeks kind of before this, Saul's chief uh, uh, herdsman, his chief kind of shepherd, Doeg, was there as well. And Doeg sees David run into Ahimelech's tent, <clears throat> and he begins to do what any good gossip does. He leans in close and begins to eavesdrop. And he gets some of the story. He doesn't get all of it. He misses bits and pieces. But he runs back to King Saul, and he basically says, hey, King Saul, I found David. I found your enemy. And I, and I hate to kind of tell you this, but, but he's joined sides with Ahimelech, and now they're working against you. Ahimelech went to God for David, and then he even gave David, he even gave David Goliath's sword. Here's what the text says. Ahimelech inquired, <clears throat> Doeg's telling this now to Saul. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him, that David showed up, and Ahimelech went to the Lord uh, for David's behalf. He also gave him provisions. He gave him food. I mean, he fed him the priest's food. And King Saul, I hate to tell you this, but he gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So the king sent for the priest Ahimelech and all of the men and family who were the, the priests at Nob, and they all came to the king. And Saul said to them this, Why have you con- conspired against me? Why have you joined sides with the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him? Or in other words, like, isn't it enough that my family's turned against me? Isn't it enough that my daughter and my son have turned against me, that the people have kind of turned against me for David? But now my chief priest is doing it as well? But Ahimelech says, like, wait a minute, Saul. Like, I don't even know what's going on. Ahimelech answered the king and says, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of the bodyguard, the highly respected in your household? He says, besides that, this isn't like the first time I went to the Lord for David. He, 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 he trusts me. We have a, a relationship. Was that the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing about this whole affair. But the king said, you will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Because King Saul's crazy. He's anxious and he's fearful and he made a horrible decision. And the king does something even worse. He then looks out at, at his kind of bodyguard. The king ordered the guards at his side to cur- turn and kill the priests of the Lord, who too have sided with David. Now his bodyguard, the, the, the warriors next to him, they refuse to do it. They say, Saul, we're not going to do this. We'll kill your enemies. We'll kill your prisoners of war. We'll kill the people who rebel against you. We'll, like, we'll kill like, other people. So I have no problem doing that. But I'm not going to kill God's priests. So Doeg, that herdsman who's kind of sitting there, he sees this as his opportunity to get in good with the king. He says, hey, Saul, if they won't do it, I will. So Doeg murders 85 priests before King Saul. It didn't stop there. King Saul then ordered, everyone standing there, now go to Nob and murder every man, woman, child, and infant. And a slaughter occurred at this city. Very few people escaped. 
The only one who did was the son of Ahimelech. He runs and he finds David. And he throws himself at David's feet and he begins to tell David this whole story. And David, hearing it, is horrified and shock and broken. And he responds by saying this, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. I am responsible, not just for the 85 priests, but for that entire city that was destroyed. It was my fear and my anxiety and my abandonment that caused me to make a decision that everyone had to pay for. We're going to pick up with the story of David there next week. I just want to end with, with a few questions for you. As we consider this, this story of David and we consider how easy it is for people to make a horrible decision in the midst of their fear and their anxiety and their abandonment, I have some questions that we need to answer. The first one is this. What is your loneliness, anger, and fear causing you to consider that you would have never, ever considered before? Relationally, financially, physically, even professionally? What are you beginning to consider that you would have never considered before, but because of, of your feelings of fear, of your feelings of anger, because of that, that sense of abandonment and loneliness, what are you considering that you would have never considered before? Here's another one. Who is your loneliness, anger, or fear causing you to consider that you should have never considered before? You know, they called you and you didn't call them back. Well, you've had that number and you've been tempting to call them. You have that relationship and, and you know it could go further. You kind of sense that. But, you know, you're married and things just aren't working out well. And whatever it is that's going on in your relationship or in your finances or maybe in, in your mind, it's causing you to consider something or someone you would have never considered before. Who is it? Who are you considering? That if you were on the outside looking in, you would say, don't, don't do this. And here's the wake-up call question. This is the question that David completely missed, but I'm hoping we get. Who besides you do your considerations put at risk? Who besides you, do you, does your decision, does your consideration put at risk? For David, it was a priest and an entire family and an entire village. Who for you? You see, I know the answer before you, you even answer it. It's the people you love most, the people who are near and dear to your heart. It's your son and your daughter. It's your mother. It's your spouse. Who besides you do you consider your considerations put at risk. And here's our last one. What advice would you give somebody who is you? What advice would you tell yourself if you were on the outside looking into your situation? As you look into your friend's situations and you consider, well, don't do this, don't make a mistake. What advice would you give them? Better yet, what advice would you give you looking into this situation? You see, if we were to ask David this advice, he would give us a response. But we're not going to ask like 22-year-old David because clearly he ran and made the wrong response. Let's ask 50-year-old David. David, what would you have us do? Here's how he responded in Psalm 9, 9 through 10. He writes, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, not a chemical, not alcohol, not a drug, not a relationship, not a person. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold. We don't really know this word often because we don't, we don't use it a lot, but a stronghold is a place that you would flee in times of war, that safe house a stronghold in times of trouble, a place for you to run when, when your fear, when your anger, when your anxiety feels like it's capitalizing and destroying your life. David said, the Lord is your place to run. Those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who, you, who seek you. 
David would say, I thought I was, I, I was forsaken, but I was mistaken. I thought God had abandoned me, but God never, ever abandoned me. I took matters into my own hand, and I made a decision that I would regret for the rest of my life. Don't do it. That's what David would say. Don't make the same mistake. Trust in the Lord. And here's what's incredible. A thousand years after this, David's most famous descendant says something to to a bunch of Israelites who are feeling oppressed and anxious and fearful because the Roman government is just destroying them and their lands. Jesus looks out over these people and Jesus says this, come to me. He put himself in place of the Lord. Come to me. You don't have to, it's not even like you had to run to God anymore. I'm here. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my burden, my perspective, my worldview upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will rest and you will find rest for your weary souls. Come to me and you will find rest. Don't make that decision. Don't give in to fear. Don't allow your abandonment to cause you to do something you will regret forever. Come to me. Take my my yoke. And my yoke is easy and it's light. It's not a burden and it's not something to fear. Come to me and you will find rest. See, David said, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. Your stronghold, a stronghold in times of trouble. But for us, it's even more personal. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, and he is your stronghold in times of trouble. I'm going to ask the worship band to come up. We're going to close with a song, and then I'll, I'll come back up for that, that special announcement that everyone's waiting for. But here's what, how I want to close. We're going to close with a song that we've sung for years and years, and it's one you're probably familiar with. I'm going to read you the opening lyrics, too, because I think it's so powerful as it kind of concludes this service. It starts like this, Promise maker, promise keeper, you finish what you begin. And then I love this line. Our provision through the desert, you see us through to the end. Then it says, the Lord our God is never changing through the ages. From this darkness, you will lead us. And forever we will say, you are the Lord our God. And then the author, he kind of concludes this song as we sing it over and over again. He says this, we won't move without you. We won't move without you. Our fear, our abandonment, our anger, our anxiety, it won't cause us to take one more step until we know you are with us, God. I've put my trust in you, and I won't move without you. And as we sing these words, I'm going to ask you all to stand. As we sing, if that's you and you hear the people around you, I want you to take this opportunity to say, God, I'm not going to do this. This is my wake-up call. I'm not going to call them back. I'm not going to call her back. I'm not going to show up when I said I would. I'm not going to buy that thing I know I shouldn't buy. I'm not going to give up hope. I'm not going to allow my anger to dictate my life. I will trust in you, O Lord, all day long.